Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. The nation is again mourning devastating loss after a gunman killed 19 students and two teachers in Uvalde, Texas last week. That tragedy comes on the heels of a mass shooting at a Buffalo grocery store where 10 people were killed and three wounded. This news is difficult enough for adults to hear and process, but what about our kids? These tragedies come on the heels of a tough couple of years, to say the least. COVID flipped life upside down for students. Later this hour, we'll round up a few local students to hear how they're holding up and what they're looking forward to about their bright futures. But first, over the past year, WPLN education reporter Juliana Kim has been talking with students, families, teachers, administrators, and lawmakers as a part of her beat. We've got some Bittersweet news. Juliana is moving on for a new opportunity. Today is her last day at WPLN. So, of course, we have to interview her one last time. Juliana Kim, welcome back to This is Nashville. Hey, Khalil. How are you? I'm feeling a lot of emotions right now, but yeah. I'm excited to talk to you. Really excited to talk to you. And by the way, you win. So far, you are the WPLN <laughs> newsroom correspondent who's been on the show the most with this appearance. So... You know, before we really look at the future for you, let's take a look back a little bit. You're from New York City. How did you become a part of this newsroom here at WPLN? Mm -hmm. um, so I've known Emily, Chaz, and Tony actually since college. So it was just kind of perfect timing. You know, I've always wanted to work with them. I really looked up to them um, since I was a college student. And when I was looking for something new and different, it just so happened that they had this really wonderful job opportunity open up. So how'd you feel when you first arrived? Um, definitely overwhelmed. I s spent the first few days sleeping on a mattress, you know, no bed frame, without a working fridge. Um, because mm. Wow. <laughs> I did um, but I think I was just really excited. You know, one of the things that brought me a lot of comfort. Um, so during the interview process here, you might know, you you definitely know, uh, folks kind of meet everyone in the newsroom, yeah. right? And I think immediately upon meeting folks on that Zoom call, I just felt a lot of comfort and a lot of peace and just everyone's warmth. I... I was really excited to work with everyone, and I think that's really been um, my anchor from just moving in to uh, all of the ups and downs of this past year. I have to give a shout out to Sam, who even before I moved here, sent me a spreadsheet of all the places that of apartments um, that are available and where I should go, you know, neighborhoods I should look into. And that's just like a small example hmm. of how amazing folks here are. It really is a tight-knit group. So tell me, what stood out to you about covering the education beat here? I think, you know, I think education reporting is at the crux is very emotional compared to other beats. I mean, I think there are also other beats that are very emotional too, but, and it's not a bad thing, but I, I think about my sister who just had a baby and the way that she worries if she's holding her baby too tight mm. or she worries if her, her baby's eating enough food, right? And I think that feeling uh, translate 
for just all the parents and teachers and just everyone who's involved in um, the school system and just kind of, uh, you know, teaching the next generation of, of folks. I And I, I, I just say that because I think that's what makes this uh, beat really tough is that everyone really does believe that they have the best interest for kids. And the answer is sometimes murky and complicated. And I also, I think, in return, try to approach education reporting with that degree of sensitivity and responsibility that the folks that I interview have. You didn't just report on education. One of your stories that I think a lot of listeners will remember was about a family in Waverly who owned the only Chinese restaurant in town. How did you find that story? So kind of after, uh, you know, our initial reporting on Waverly, uh, I, you know, I was just looking back at our coverage, reading other newspapers, and I stumbled upon an AP photo of a worn down flood, you know, Rickon, I don't think that's a word. Uh, <laughs> we'll make it one. Um, Chinese restaurant. And I thought, what? Like, there are Chinese Americans who lived in this town. And I was reading back on all of our coverage and just wondering if we, had, you know, there were anyone, anyone quoted who was, you know, a pure Chinese. And I just had a million questions, not just about how they're doing now, but um, what was their life like in Waverly? You know, I, I just think about my own experience as being Asian American in Nashville and the, uh, you know, kind of the trials that came with that. And I couldn't imagine, you know, kind of being honest about what it was like to be an Asian American family, one of the few um, in, you know, a smaller kind of more rural town like Waverly. Um, and so I just spent months tracking, trying to track them down. Like I literally asked everyone and anyone if they had known this family, who might know this family. Um, and there were a lot of moments where I was like, oh, should I just give up? Uh, but um, then I was at a bar with Emily, our, you know, our newsroom director, Emily, and I was like, I don't know, I've been trying to find this family and I don't think I could find them. And she was like, oh, well, you know, I know this person. Why don't you just email them? And I was like, oh, I've emailed so many people. Like, I don't think this is going to work. <laughs> and then it, I... And then I emailed them and it turned out that they had like reached out to someone who reached out to someone who knew them. And it was just this like kind of whole community effort, which I think is a really good example of what local reporting looks like. It really takes a lot. You know, it's a lot of people from the community to even make one story happen. OK, we've got a moment from your reporting where Sammy Lou, one of the restaurant owners, shows you a video of her daughter dancing in the restaurant before it flooded. Let's listen. This is also the restaurant? Yeah. <laughs> it's so cute. Huh? What is this? <laughs> what is this? Okay, so listening to that, it really makes it seem like being a reporter is a lot of fun. Tell me about that moment. Hmm. So... One of the things I try to do uh, sometimes in interviews is I just ask them to kind of show me some photos and videos that elicit some memories, right? And they could tell me about why they chose that uh, video or photo uh, to share with me. And, you know, before we had kind of moved to that part of our interview, we were having a really hard emotional conversation. Mm -hmm. She was telling me once more about 
the flood and just, you know, moment by moment what happened. She talked to me about what she had lost and how hard it was uh, to be in the process of trying to get things back. But when we got to this moment where I was like, well, can you just show me photos of life in the restaurant before uh, the flood came? She just lit up and she... It's like we it's like we were at ha- it was like she wasn't even crying like 5 minutes earlier. Mm. And throughout the whole time that I've known Sammy, I always wondered how she had the strength to talk to me and the strength to just really be an anchor for her family. And it was in that moment looking at photos with her do- of her daughter and seeing the way that Sammy just immediately lit up, I knew that she was getting her strength from her kids. Mm. Um, and, and maybe that sounds cheesy, but it's, it's no, just true. It's true. I like that. You know, one of our recent newsroom meetings, a colleague gave you a shout out for finding these stories where a particular place has a special meaning, like the China Buffet in Waverly. Another place was the Piggly Wiggly on West End. You talked with a regular named Ken as the store was getting ready to shut down for good. Do you think you come here more for the groceries or the people? I always come for the groceries. But I like to you know, hang out with the people and, you know, I'm going to miss them. I'm really going to miss them. I mean, they, they're all like friends. You know, it's, it's like a family atmosphere here. And see, a lot of the people that shop here, they, they, they pretty much know each other. And so, you know, the basketball games, baseball games, especially Vanderbilt baseball. The groceries, but also the people. What drew you to this story? So I actually live near this Piggly Wiggly grocery store. Is that your normal grocery store haunt? Um, in some ways, yes. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, something that struck me about Piggly Wiggly, this particular one, is it's not just that I grew close with the grocery clerks who kind of started to know me by name, but there was all, also this kind of warmth among the customers. Like there was this close-knit community and it's almost like if you're gonna shop at Piggly Wiggly, you're, not, you're, you're gonna know everyone here. Mm. You're gonna know the folks, the customers who come here on a daily basis. And that's kind of what happened to me. I, you know, um, I, I just grew close with also the customers and I realized this is a really special place that kind of reminded me of the bodegas in New York um, and just the way that you're not only ex- expected to uh, you know, talk about your day not, and like share your life, but you're also expected to come back and continue to just grow with these folks. And so when I heard it was cl- going to close, I mean, I was just, I was personally heartbroken. And I still actually talked to Ken and I still talked to Lee, who was a the manager there. I've been meaning to get, I, I promised Ken that we would uh, share some soju together because that's something that <laughs> he drank when he was mm-hmm. in the, I think, uh, he uh, was in like the Korean War, okay. um, but yeah. So just it, what drew me was the people. You also did some extensive reporting on the AAPI communities here in Nashville. What was that like for you? Just really re- rewarding. Um, you know, I, I just <sighs> it's weird to say, but I I think I took a lot my Asian Americanness for granted before I really moved to Nashville and I didn't really think much of it. And I think this pandemic has really forced me in a good way to reflect on my identity, not just uh, to myself, but in prox- you know proximity to other communities of color, to just other people. And um, I've, I've 
feel less like I've reported on this community and more like I have been on this self-discovery journey mm. of like what it means to be Asian American, what power and what obstacles that holds with the people in Nashville. And that's like something I'm just going to forever be grateful for. Wow. <laughs> now you, that's, you know, so at one point you were talking with Joseph, Joseph Gutierrez of the Asian Pacific Islander nonprofit, API Middle Tennessee, and comparing notes about Nashville versus where you're both originally from, New York and L.A. <laughs> Let's take a listen. That's why I think it's so fascinating to think like before here, I never heard of a Pan-Asian supermarket. What is I, <laughs> that is not a thing. Did you yeah. have that in L.A.? Yeah, I mean, I mean, they carry everybody carries like Yan Yan and like Hello Panda, like all the Asian snacks. They all carry at every single one. But yeah, my mom would go to the Filipino grocery store, and I would know when I was in a Korean grocery store. So grocery stores, I have a feeling you like those a lot. <laughs> I do. <laughs> so do I. They're, they're wonderful places. You know, tell me, what was it like for you connecting with like fellow Asian Americans who had also come here from all over the place? It. It's honestly, it's always going to have such a special place in my heart. I just feel so honored to have heard everyone's different stories about why they came here, how they came here, and what it's been like. And um, it's just been truly one of my favorite moments uh, and truly what defined my experience in Nashville. Um, and I just hope it's just the beginning and, and that I'm going to continue on with that curiosity um, and just real uh, commitment to tell stories about uh, my community. That is Juliana Kim, who is serving her last day as education reporter WPLN. Juju, thanks for everything you've done and the best wishes of success and happiness to you. Thank you. We have to take a short break. When we come back, it's been a tough couple weeks in the news. How are the ongoing mass shootings in our country affecting our youth? We'll invite a few students to reflect on these tragedies and the past two plus years of learning through a global pandemic. Are you a student or recent graduate? How are you holding up? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil E. Colonna, and this is Nashville. It's graduation season across Middle Tennessee. High school and college students are donning their caps and gowns, walking across the stage and on to the next place in life. If they're lucky, that is. Today's students are not only facing academic rigors, they're facing the potential threat of gun violence every day. The recent tragedies of Buffalo, New York, and Uvalde, Texas are just the latest examples, but our region is not immune. Recently, Hassani Brewer was shot and killed after a high school graduation ceremony in Murfreesboro. And just this past weekend, there was a non-fatal shooting involving teens in Chattanooga. Chattanooga. That's a lot. And we wanted to make time to see how the young folks in our region are holding up. My first guest is Alexandra Job. She just finished up her freshman year at MTSU. Alexandra, welcome back to This is Nashville. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Really, thank you for joining us today. So tell me, how how are you today? How'd the school year go for you? Um, um, to be honest, I'm with everything going on, I'm just I'm heartbroken, but I'm I'm motivated too. I'm glad to hear that you're motivated. 
You know, on Wednesday, May 18th, there was a shooting on MTSU's campus right after a high school graduation ceremony. Two teenagers were shot. One of them died from their injuries. Were you on campus when it happened? No, um, I actually decided to leave campus two days before the shooting happened. Mm, How'd you find out about it? Um, We have an app that MTSU has this all download and it's in case of emergencies or active shooter situations like that. And so right when it happened, they sent out a notification that says that there's an active shooter on campus. And so I got the notification. What'd you do next? Um, I called my sister and then I started texting my friends to make sure that they weren't on campus and asking them if they were okay. Um, And then I started like Googling to look at news stories and see if anyone was hurt and things like that. Now, this took place pretty close to your apartment. What were your thoughts as you learned more about this shooting? Um, I felt guilty at first um, because leaving campus was a big decision for me. And I, I, To be honest, it was more of like a when would this situation happen instead of if. Mm. And um, I felt like the one time that it did happen, I should have been there to, I don't know. I know there's not like much that I could have done, but a lot of students said that they could hear their gunshots from their apartment. And I felt like I should have been on campus instead of just like, you know, leaving my people behind. What was the reaction of your peers that you spoke with? They said that they were okay and that they were safe. Um, You know, that they were still a little shaken up because they could hear what had happened. Um, But yeah, they were okay for the most part. You know, we wanted to get a sense of how the news of Uvalde was hitting home for students here in Middle Tennessee. So over the weekend, WPLN education reporter Juliana, Juliana Kim caught up with three high school students. Let's listen to what they had to say. One day I'll I'll eventually I'll eventually have my own kids and it's like that would be scary for them for that to happen to like my kids or like my sister or my brother because they're still in uh, elementary and middle school. I just feel like they just need to have better protocols and like more protection for them. I I'm desensitized. I don't feel anything when I I didn't feel anything when I heard the news. In my mind, I was just thinking. Another another shooting? Um, I guess since I graduated, it kind of put more relief on me, which I felt bad about. But like, I was very, um, I guess, upset and also relieved that I'm no longer in like a public school setting to where I could be like a victim of that. Those were high school seniors, Denisha Wilson from Glencliff, Frank Yang from Hume Fogg, and Tyler Murray from Antioch. Alexandra, how does anything those students said resonate with you? I related to the student who said that he was desensitized um, for because for a long time when I saw shootings, I was very desensitized to it um, and it didn't affect me as much as in a way that I wanted it to. Um, but when I saw the shooting of the elementary school kids, it affected me. And I couldn't sleep and um, I was just super emotional and I was, it shouldn't happen 
to little kids like that too. Because I mean, we, I was 16 when we did our first walkout for gun violence. And I realized like that is still me being a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were really little kids, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, I just, I, in a way, the violence and the mass shootings and the active shooters situations and like all the things that we've been taught, it kind of grew me up in a sense into a way that like, I wasn't a little kid going to school anymore or like a high schooler going to school. I was just a person who was super cautious and like ready for that situation. And especially because of my disability, it puts me at a huge disadvantage to an active shooter situation. Um, And so I kind of had to stop being a kid and be like ready for that situation. And so that one hit me a lot harder. And um, I, I was just ready to do whatever I had to do to Mm -hmm. stop this. I want to invite my next guest into the conversation. Sid Siddiqui is a recent high school graduate from Hendersonville. She's joined by rising seniors, Christina Amaya Sandoval from Nashville and Quentin Ding from Cookville. Thank you all for being with us today. You know, I want to get your reactions to the tragedy in Uvalde, Texas. Sid, let's start with you. Well, as um, someone else said, it really is desensitized at this point, and it shouldn't be like that. But, you know, when you have 2,000 mass shootings in a year and you're even hearing about, say, 20, 30 of them that are coming on the news that are, you know, big breaking news, you can't really do much about it except mourn and, you know, fight for your beliefs and honor the victims and their families. Christina. It hurts because it hit a Latino community and I'm part of that community. Mm -hmm. And to see all those kids, you know, get killed and see their parents in anguish really touched my heart. And as one person mentioned, I don't think a kid should go through this, neither should their parents. And I think we have to take action against this violence. Quentin. So like Alexandra and Sid said, it's it's almost a feeling of apathy uh, or the lack of any emotions, except for a, maybe a brief moment of uh, like a pitting feeling in your stomach. But after that, you just carry on your day because there's realization that there's nothing much that you can do. You know, Christina, I want to know, do you have fears that something like this will happen at your school? I do. One, because we're in downtown. I go to a school in downtown and like there's so much going on and we only have one resource officer So to be able to get like people on campus to assess the situation is going to take forever. And I think that we haven't gotten enough like measures of practice to be able to be ready in a type of situations besides fire drills, which is obviously not enough. I'm going to ask you about that a little bit later, but Sid, you recently graduated. Did you feel safe when you were at school? Um, I think that's a very layered question. Hmm. 
So I went to a very small magnet school um, in Hendersonville. So there are about 50 graduating seniors this past year. Um, and I've been at the school for the past seven years. So throughout that time, you know, our administration takes great pride in their safety measures for fire drills and lockdowns. So we will have routine lockdown drills always announced, routine fire drills. We'll have, you know, we'll be asked for feedback after each one to see what they can do better, what they can do to make it safer. But honestly, in the case of a shooting, some of those safety measures might not work. If a gun's in front of you, you can't run or they're going to shoot you. You're you're done. So, I mean, there's always that looming fear that, you know, even when I'm going to college, you know, this could happen. Mm-hmm. Like there's a, there's a portal for um, our school for college. And every time I log on to it, there are like safety threat notifications, whether it's, you know, someone being assaulted or like someone with a gun on campus or being robbed. And it's just, you know, like, when do you escape that? So even with the protective safety measures, is it enough? Quentin, how about you? So personally, I I don't think a lot of people necessarily fear uh, the threat of a shooter or I don't want to create a, a blanket statement, but rather it is just this looming idea and it's a little uh, nugget of information or you know awareness that this could happen to them. And it's stuff like that that could hinder your performance in school. But uh, you know, personally, I, I up until now, I did trust my uh, school resource officers to do their job and to uh, uh, confront any school shooter, but after the response in Uvalde, uh, that brings into questions on whether or not our officers uh, are qualified or willing to confront a, a potential shooter. If you, so, if sorry. you, I'm sorry, if you're just tuning in, this is Nashville and I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona. We're talking with students about the recent deadly shootings in Uvalde, Buffalo, and here in our region at MTSU. Now, Quentin, you said up until now, you had faith in the administration to provide safety, but with the response in Uvalde, you, you kind of changing your mind. And I saw both of you, Christina, and said, shake your heads, yes. Are you now questioning that? Like what the role of the authorities to keep yourself safe? Absolutely, yes. Yeah, for sure. So I want a question. How many of you have been through active shooter drills during your time at school? I have. Sid? I have, but very few. Very few? How about you, Quentin? Uh, honestly, maybe just once a, once a year or so annually. Alexandra? Um, we never went through an active shooter drill, um, but in middle school, they would always have, like, in case of a fire drill, they would go on and um, have two administration officers, like, say, this is a fire drill. And, and so, like, in case someone pulled the fire alarm, Mm-hmm. In case of an active shooter, like not a bunch of a bunch of people would not like run out of the classroom, you know. Christina, so. tell me, what was it like to go through that drill? I don't know. I feel like we didn't take it as seriously. I feel like at at least at my school, it was more of of a lockdown rather than an active shooter because it was just the principal or principals like of the administration like trying to open the door. Mm-hmm. I feel like there could be more measures to improve this type of simulation because to me it was simply like a lockdown drill. 
And, you know, we didn't have those. I graduated high school a long time ago. And um, we didn't have those all throughout school. We had fire drills that we didn't take seriously. But the fact that they're here, these active shooter drills and lockdown drills that was uncalled for, unheard of when I was in school. But yet you all are quite accustomed to this from elementary school all the way through high school. How does that affect your mental health, Quentin? Um, so personally, I've always adopted this uh, sort of measure to uh, block those kinds of, kinds of things out um, and, and try my best not to let it hinder my performance. Um, in, in recent years, I'd say that this fear of a shooter has uh, dissipated, but it's, I'm always aware of it. Um, and it doesn't occupy as much headspace on a daily basis for me as I, it used to do in middle school. So, for example, in middle school, uh, when we had the surge in school shootings, it was on everybody's mind um, in every moment of the day. But after a while, like Sid and uh, Alexandra said, we've become desensitized to it. So, in a sense, I'm sort of gaslighting myself uh, as a necessity to not let uh, these things hinder my performance in school and not let it uh, get in the way of my social life. So... Maybe maybe uh, such an approach may have long-term effects on mental health, but for now, I'd say it would be all right. Now, Alexandra, as you said before, you didn't go through active shooter drills in school, but you have other concerns because you use a wheelchair. When you think of an exit strategy, what do you have to do differently? Um, to be honest, it's more of like when I'm thinking of awareness to active shooter drills, I know that. Um, a safety measure that a lot of people use when hearing shooting is to drop to the ground. And that that is a lot harder for me to do since I'm in a chair. And so whenever I'm just thinking about what I would do in that kind of situation in my head, is just sort of using myself to help the people that I love get to the ground instead. Um, because um, if I'm if I'm being honest, it would just it would be harder for me to get to the ground, and um, that kind of situation would just it would it would be better for me to use myself to help other people mm. um, get to the ground. You know. Now, you know, social emotional learning is one way that schools are trying to help students with mental health. Sid, do you think that that's enough? Do you feel like you and your peers are really being helped? I think across Tennessee, just in general, there is a huge lack of flexible, open mental health resources um, in public education. Um, we're given the option to speak to a counselor. I was privileged enough to go to a smaller school where you know it wasn't as busy and they can make time for each one of us. But... A lot of us didn't trust talking to those counselors and, you know, we just, there weren't comfortable methods for us to be open voluntarily and actually receive the help that we need. Um, How do you feel about that? What she said, Christina? Um, well, at least in my case, I got the opportunity to talk to my counselor, but as she said, there, there isn't enough 
for us. Like, there's not enough resources. I feel like it's just, oh, everything's going to be all right. It's the same response once and over and over again. So, and I feel like personally, in my case, whenever I tried to get to my counselor, she was always busy or in a meeting. So that just represents part of that that lack of, you know, awareness to students who are actually in need. Because in my opinion, if I had a worse case or like a worse mental health illness, then that that wouldn't help me at all. You know, Alexandra, you just finished up your freshman year. Um, how, how about support at your school after the shooting on campus? What do you want people to consider about gun violence and safety in schools? Um, the help that MTSU gives is, it's there. It's just very hard to get because there are a lot of students on campus and there are not a lot of counselors. Um, and to get mental health care is really hard in America. Um, and that's one thing that we need to work on, especially because teenagers are being exposed to violence that should not be happening and that we're not built to be exposed to. Um, and so like college campuses and school campuses, like they, like everyone was saying, like you can get what you need as much as you need from those counselors, but at, there's a point where like, it's just not enough, you know? Yeah. That is Alexandra Job, freshman at Middle Tennessee State University. Alexandra, thanks for being with us. We're taking a quick break. When we come back, we'll look into the future and ask our young panel what they'd like to see change to keep us all safer. If you're a student, tweet us at This Is Nashville. Tell us how you've been feeling and what your hopes are for the future. We'll be right back. Leole Colonna, and this is Nashville. Gun violence and mass shootings are back in the public discussion after recent deadly shootings, one in an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas, and the other at a neighborhood grocery store in Buffalo, New York. Two places we use and rely on every day. This hour, we've gathered a few local students to reflect on these tragedies and share how it makes them feel about how safe they are in their own schools. Back with us are Sid Siddiqui, a recent high school graduate from Hendersonville, and rising seniors Christina Amaya Sandoval from Nashville and Quentin Ding from Cooksville. Cookville. So let's start with this portion of the show with the big question first. What do you all want to see changed? I'll give each of you an opportunity to answer. Christina. What do I want to see change? Gun regulation. Mm -hmm. I think it is unfair for someone to just have a gun and not be able to like document that and process that and know that they're using that gun. And another thing is like, aside from that, like another additional thing would be to like the purpose of the gun, like what are you going to use it for? If you're going to use it to kill someone, then you shouldn't be authorized to use the gun. 
And I think that should be in check so we can avoid all this violence going on in schools and not just in schools and public areas. Sid? Regulation and accountability, not for just for these individuals, but for lawmakers as well. They are the people who have the power to change these um, policies. Like this last session, um, there was a bill that was introduced, House Bill 2509, and that was to remove a short barrel rifle from the list of prohibited weapons for the offense of intentionally or knowing possessing manufacturing a weapon. And I just don't understand how there can be a logical explanation for why you would need, you know, a semi-automatic weapon or, you know, just anything for recreational use. So I, the people who have the power should take into account the feelings of their constituents. Quentin, I'd like to hear your thoughts. Sure. So as Christina said, highlighted, we are, we are all aware of what we want in terms of uh, regulation and policy and legislation and the conduct of our lawmakers. Um, so what I want to see is uh, our generation, you know, this generation of students to be more involved politically. Because the reality is, Cleo, that no legislator is going to listen to us. No legislator is going to listen if, uh, you know, such a tragedy has been repeated over the past two decades over and over and nothing has changed. Um, so anything I say up here is uh, going to fall on deaf ears, essentially. So what I want to see is our students to be more involved in the political processes. I want them to join a local political party. I want them to uh, actually legislate and actually push for legislation instead of, uh, you know, opting for easier solutions or easier uh, alternatives. What would you like to see enacted by Congress? So I'd like to see a specific regulation um, on how exactly one can access a gun. So right now, uh, mental mental health and mental uh, illnesses are one of the talking points for a particular side and uh, explaining school shootings. So if that's the case, I would like to see insurance companies be responsible for uh, assessing the risk and the mental health of an individual if they were to buy a gun, you know. Uh, it would sort of be in the same way as a uh, buying an automobile. So by doing this, you know, if insurance, uh, if they're liable for any potential slip-ups, then I'm confident that they will uh, be sure to do a correct risk assessment on an individual. Now, long before any of you were born, there was a mass shooting in Port Arthur, Australia, killed over 30 people. Within two weeks, the government made sweeping changes to the country's gun laws and that have almost eliminated mass shootings since that time. How do you feel hearing that? Seeing that this much smaller, less sweeping change, it's kind of like that you mentioned, Quentin, if any, when we see these tragedies happen here in the U.S., these are the ones that are spoken about. Sid, how do you feel hearing about what Australia did? Well, it makes me hopeful, but it also makes me infuriated because the U.S. has the potential to do that same thing. But for their own reasons, they're choosing not to. And they're risking the lives of every single person in this country on a daily basis. And we've seen there have been over 2,000 mass shootings since the beginning of 2022. We're not even halfway into the year yet. So it just makes us feel like we need to do better. I want, I want to talk to you all about the support that you've been getting from staff uh, and teachers. Last week, we talked with Dr. Megan Kusin-Lark, Lark, is executive director of school counseling for Metro Public Schools. And we, 
we asked her about how counselors and students are doing. And here's what she said when asked what she would say to students who are feeling frightened. Obviously, probably just as they feel, we all feel um, saddened by um, the loss in Uvalde um, and all of the other, you know, whether there were school shootings or just mass shootings. And that, you know, ultimately, we um, the goal is for us not just to keep kiddos safe, but, you know, all people safe. And so um, that, you know, we're sorry they have to experience this. We want them to know how to kind of work through it and, and cope for the, through the, with their emotions and their feelings. I think that's important to truly just hear how they feel, to answer their questions, to let them talk about it, right? But then also to, to possibly find ways in which, maybe they can act or have an impact, right? Um, or if there's things where students may not feel safe um, in the schools, well, make sure you speak that voice that we wanna hear your voice so that we can try to help improve that, right? And so um, to advocate in the ways that they can, but then also you know, not to keep in their feelings, to express them um, so that we can help them in any sadness or anxiety they may have. You know, do you feel that you have space and support at school to express how you're feeling and to really kind of work through these really difficult emotions? Christina? I don't. Mm. Because one, the nature of my environment, school environment is pretty busy. And I feel like as a student who goes to an academic school, it's just, there's no time for it. And as I've mentioned before, if I do have time to go to my counselor, my counselor's busy. She's not. She's booked all, almost all the time. So I don't get to pour out these emotions that I need to let go of. And I know that other fellow students can relate to me in this manner, that we, we just can't express what we feel. We can't have our voice heard because of just, you know, the lack of being there, their, their presence. Well, what do you do to express your voice? Who do you talk to? Well, personally, I talk to my teachers. Mm. I feel like they're, they're the only ones who, who actually hear me and consider me when, when we speak because, you know, not just because they're teachers, but they're also human beings. And so being able to connect with your teachers is really important not just you know for your school success but your emotional success and i feel like because of them i would have i would have not gone through all that i've gone through since like pre-pandemic to now if you're just tuning in this is nashville and i'm your host Khalil colonna we're talking with local students about what they would like to see change to keep us all safer after the recent deadly shootings in our country and in our region so you said something right there christina you talked about your teachers being human and i'm interested in that like have you all been able to see your teachers in a different light they're experiencing these tragedies as well and it's hard to be this bedrock of strength that we're you know, all human after all, like you mentioned, you know, Quentin, I'm wondering what insight have you gained about who the people who are educating you are? Sure. Uh, so between, uh, w when the shooting happened and between now, uh, I've spoken to a number of my teachers and, uh, you know, these teachers are straight up teachers where they could be a teacher and a parent. And, um, and in one case, 
one of my teachers is a, a parent to two young boys who are in elementary and kindergarten. So this strikes particularly at home. And like Christina said, or like you said, they have to be a bulwark of strength and show that to students. But as soon as they get home, it's like, it's like a wave of emotion coming towards them because you know they're worried for their own students uh, and in a way they are their kids too. And they're also worried about their biological kids. And uh, you know all the stress uh, added on to their criminally underpaid uh, salaries and, and added responsibilities, it, it creates this environment where it can hinder uh, a teacher's performance and it can really affect the educational quality of our students. Sid? I remember having a conversation with one of my favorite teachers sometime last year, and we had um, an active shooter near campus at one point. I believe it was either freshman or sophomore year for me. And I just remember the panic setting in on her face. And, you know, it was just a moment of craziness for everyone. But after that, she was telling me, you know, like this wasn't in my job description. It's making me rethink, you know, what do I really want to teach? Do I want to do what I love? Because you guys are my priority. Like, this is my job. I have to protect you. Like, there's been a lot of conversations about teachers being armed in schools and, you know, taking measures to protect their students, whether that's like keeping, you know, recreational weapons like in their classroom or whatever. But just thinking that they would sacrifice their life for us, even if they just met us, those two teachers who were killed in Uvalde, mm-hmm. they were just trying to protect their students, their helpless students. So in that situation, we're all helpless, even teachers you know this is a problem for all of us to fix and we've seen moments of great change in our society and normally it's the young who bring that energy of change in what ways do you want to make an impact in our country and to make our schools safer christina as quentin mentioned i think it was um getting people involved it may be as he said um political party or also like just getting getting involved in a rally, going to the Capitol, especially like for us who go to school in downtown, walking to the Capitol and walking out in a march. Honestly, it has to be something that has to be repeated over and over again in order to have our voice heard because we're just often overlooked at as young people. But if we, if we stand up together and if we speak out and if we speak out against gun violence, I know that our voices will eventually be heard. Quentin? So to contradict uh, Christina a little bit, um, I, I'm a firm believer in protests and rallies and everything of that sort, but I believe that such actions are, at the end of the day, a supplementary thing. Um, and they're great, but they should not be our main form of changing our society. Uh, so I, I would like to advocate for students who uh, invest in themselves and invest in an education so they can go on and become the lawmakers and legislators of our country because the reality is our current legislators do not listen to us. So we live in a uh, in a republic where we can become our own legislators, um, especially when our states and, and how our legislators are formed, we're supposed to be part-time legislators. So. I think students need to understand that they can pursue uh, multiple careers at once and not just a political career. So I think that 
our generation needs to be more directly involved and instead of uh, just protests and, and rallies. Now, Sid, if I understand correctly, you did an internship at the State House, right? That is correct. Is that a part of your path in the future is to become a lawmaker? Yes, I want to be studying political science on a pre-law track to enter the world of politics. Okay, now how does this, these events and this conversation we're having, how does that kind of shape and mold your ideas for the future? It really just makes me more passionate. The reason I wanted to go into politics was to assist these marginalized groups of people who weren't being heard because I'm a first-generation American and you know I can understand the struggle and the lack of privilege that these people have, but it just makes me think, like, even as a legislator, am I going to be heard? So I mean, I've seen a lot of what goes on behind closed doors in the world of politics, whether it's, you know, gun legislation or book banning or anything in between, healthcare, abortion rights. But I also just want to say there is a March for Our Lives um, protest on June 11th at Public Square Park at 11 a.m., um, so I highly encourage everyone who is listening right now to attend. Mark your calendars. We're going to march again. Christina, what are your hopes for the future? What are your plans? I hope to be a voice for those who don't have a voice as well, because I'm also a first-generation American, a Latina, proud Latina, and I hope to bring that voice to those who can't speak up for themselves. And I hope to also become hopefully a doctor one day and help these people who have mental health needs and help them, you know, come come out of their situation and grow as people and to become stronger. Quentin, real quick, what are your plans for the future? Uh, I hope to uh, be there and undo all the uh, destructive policies that our current legislators have uh, created. But uh, until then, we'll see. Well, not only do I look forward to seeing what you all do, I look forward to working with you as you make these things happen. That is Sadiq Siddiqui, recent high school graduate from Hendersonville. She was joined by rising seniors, Christina Amaya Sandoval and from Nashville and Quentin Ding from Cookville. We wanna thank everyone who tuned in this hour tomorrow. Check us out. We're talking about childcare, how hard it is to find, and it is very expensive. Tune in for this special Citizen Nashville episode. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. You can listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Limley. Our lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director, our executive producer, Andrea Tudhope. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. We want to say special thanks to Mr. Jalen Hayes, Amanda Smithsfield, and Meg, Dr. Megan Cusin Lark. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Facebook and Instagram. Tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody, and be good to each other.